Hello, I'm Stephanie Bysouth, your host of the Agile Boss Podcast, where we reveal the strategies, tactics and experiences of great Agile business leaders. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode. Full disclosure, we're recording this during the 2020 COVID-19 lockdown. So today we've got a special episode. We're talking to Jodie Weir, Head of Agility at The Iconic, Australia and New Zealand's largest online fashion store. And we're going to delve into her deep, agile business management history, starting with her time at Intuit. Intuit is a USA $7 billion company that transformed the way tax was prepared, developed QuickBooks for business and acquired Mint personal financial management. So welcome, Jody. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Steph. I'm excited to be here. So let's kick off. What started you on your agile business management journey? Sure. Well, you mentioned that um, I worked in the States, um, in the Silicon Valley for Intuit, and um that's really where my Agile journey started. I don't even think we were calling it Agile at the time. In fact, I'm pretty sure we weren't. Yeah, I grew up with Agile, new ways of working, and, and I'm so thankful for the start that I got at Intuit. Um, and so how that, what that looked like is that, that um, the founder of Intuit, Scott Cook, he was a CEO for some time. As the company got bigger, he brought in uh, another CEO, and uh, but he stayed with the company. And he used to say that he still wants to serve communities and people. And the best way that he knew how to serve was through his work at the company. And so what he did was teach us and help us learn how to better serve our customers, how to empathize with customers, how to deliver great services and products. And he did that. So in the Silicon Valley, there's there's a lot of thought leaders and they all network with each other. And so at the time, we didn't really realize that, well, I didn't definitely didn't realize how great what he was doing was for all of us and me individually. But he, he brought in people like the founder of the Stanford Design School, who is just starting to come uh, create uh, design thinking. And uh, they called it Design for Delight. I think they still do call it Design for Delight at Intuit, their version of design thinking. He, they, he came in and taught us that, and, and we brought those kinds of practices into our work. Um, he also, when Eric Reese, I think it might have been even before he made he wrote the lean startup he would do um video webcasts because there was quite a few employees when i was there i don't know i think now they have almost ten thousand, but maybe there was eight thousand. and so we would all get in conference rooms and he would be broadcasting with different people and thought leaders like eric reese and talking about build measure learn and lean startup and then we'd apply that to our thinking um, we were applying moments of truth um, and and mapping out customer experiences and yeah and so that was just how we worked and we did follow me home so it was very common we call them follow me homes and they still do that i think too that was basically going to a customer's house so if, if they were uh 
consumer, customer, go to their house, asking them how they manage their finances, just show us what you normally do, and um, or watching them, watching a small business use QuickBooks, and um, and learning from from observing, and um, and all of that was extremely powerful at the time. But um, once I left into it and re and saw what other companies were and weren't doing, and started you know bringing those practices with me um I, I i realized you know how fortunate i was to have that experience early in my career that's a powerful mindset is that what set them up for success i mean today they're worth seven billion dollars and serving over 50 million customers definitely i mean i i'm a believer that whatever if the leaders set the culture and everyone role models what the leaders do and um, there's no doubt about it at Intuit. And this is true of a lot of companies now where the equation at Intuit, and they would even use this equation, was customer, take care of our customers, take care of our employees, and the profits will follow. And so it's not that we never looked at, you know, how we were doing from a profitability perspective, but it definitely was not how you led any conversation. And, you know, nowadays you see more companies um, with that approach, which I think is fantastic because I, I truly believe that it's a winning formula. And, um, and yeah, that was, that was there 20 years ago at Intuit. It sounds like such a great winning formula and seems obvious retrospectively, but it's pretty hard for a lot of companies to achieve even today. What is it about the management in terms of their practices that was so different that really helped them out? To this day, I, um, I use Intuit as an example of, I remember when I first started working there and in the interview process as every company, you know, they, they tell you every, these things that it sounds fantastic. And I said to my husband, you know, even if 50% of what they say is true, I think this is going to be an amazing company to work with. And I got in there and I was like, wow, like it was true what they were telling me. And one of the things um, they, um, they said a lot, and I don't know if it was in the values or not, but it was said all the time was assume good intent. And it was a culture of transparency. We didn't talk about the word transparency. And we didn't have OKRs, although they might use those now, but we definitely had goals that laddered down and everybody knew what everyone else's were, not people, but teams, not at the people level, but at the team and the department level. And so what I noticed in other organizations where there'd be politics or who owns what, and into it, when there was a clash, it would be like, hmm, seems to be like we might be solving for something that is contradictory to what you're solving for. Let's compare, you know, uh, what our goals are and try to iron this out. It was very functional conversation. And, you know, it's not to say that there's no politics. I mean, I think that's impossible when there's humans involved. But it was a much healthier organ um, culture than I've seen at um, other big corporates um, in my um, experience. And um, yeah, assume good intent. I love that one because I really do think that most, almost all the time, people's intent is, is, is right and positive. It's just that it might be um, contradictory to what you're trying to do. But if you come at a problem with assuming 
there's good intent in what they were doing and you just need to understand more, uh, you, you end up getting to a better place. What about some of the practices? What would you say were your favorite that really helped out? By far, one of my favorite experiences. Um, so I mentioned the Follow Me Homes, which we did a lot going to the customer's environment and watching them. We we did have on the campus, because in Silicon Valley, the big companies have campuses because it's not tall buildings. So there's like clusters of buildings, so they call it campus. Um, we had a usability lab, so you know, the like with the one-sided mirror thing. Uh, so we could actually do real live usability tests, but those weren't as insightful as when we actually went to the customer's home and, and saw what they're doing, saw their surroundings, their environment. And the most powerful thing that I, well, one of the most powerful things that I experienced there was when they organized for everyone in our department to go to, I think it was three or more customers' houses to observe them. And then we all came back and talked about what we observed and what trends we were seeing. And it was just such a powerful shared experience. Yeah, I, and it was such an investment. I mean, everyone took that time out of whatever they were doing in their normal work for like, I think a two week period and, and did that and just organizing it all. And, but it was, it was super um, insightful, but also brought the team together because the empathy that we created for the customers and we could talk about them, you know, like we would, we would create personas for them. So, you know, we talk about, well, what about Jane, single mom? What about when she uses this versus, you know, Samantha, the, the businesswoman or whatever it was. So yeah, that I really, that really um, set for me that uh, appreciation for going and seeing and observing and really trying to get into the customer shoes as much as you can um, to understand what their pain points are so that you can help create solutions that are going to meet their needs. Sounds really powerful. Now, a lot of companies do have UX teams today, but they often outsource that just to the UX team or customer support. Who, who was involved at Intuit? That's what made it so powerful is that it was everyone. It was everyone. Even I think the um, executive assistants came. It was, it was design. It was engineering. It it was QA, it was project management, it was, yeah, product owners, which I don't think we called them product owners then, I think we called them product managers. It was the head of the department, it was everybody. Comparatively to spending money on UX, on innovation, and the amount of marketing that companies do to get you in the mindset of the customer, it sounds like such an affordable option. I think I'm going to trademark it, stalkathons, get to know your customers. Everybody out, let's go meet them. I love it, and I love the term, stalkathon. So Intuit was obviously just a fantastic learning foundation for your career, and you've done a lot for companies around becoming agile or becoming like Intuit. But come on, what's one of your pet peeves that you've got about agile? The con of Agile that I see is we practice agility to achieve the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And so um, it's not, if it doesn't fit an Agile box, then, and it's the best way to get your outcome, I see no reason why you can't do it that way. 
I personally think an agile approach often is the best way to go about things, but it's not the be all and end all. And I think there's, I mean, really having the decisions made by the team as close, you know, who are close to the work is the most important thing. And then I, the other pet peeve I have is when you are collaborating effectively, that often means that you're working, you're not working alone a lot, working with one or more people at a time. Often those, um, when you do that, people call that meetings. And it doesn't matter if it's a workshop or a work session, it's just called a meeting. And then people tend to say things like, I can't get any work done because I'm always in meetings. Now, if your meetings or your interactions with other people is completely unproductive, then I would say, yeah, you need to do something and change that. But if you're having productive collaboration time with people, then that is work. That's actually real important work. <laughs> and so it does, um, every time I hear someone say like, oh, you know, do we really have to meet that much? You know, I'm thinking that's where the magic happens. <laughs> and yes, we can do things on our own and asynchronously and it doesn't all have to be group activities, but a lot of times the richness comes from, from that collaboration. So what's your tip for other managers to get the best out of collaboration time? The biggest tip I can give for leaders is to go first and role model the behavior they want to see. Just stop a meeting. Say, look, this meeting isn't productive. We're not going to have this meeting anymore. I've seen that um, from some really strong leaders um, where they'll just cancel a meeting series and say, you know what, this isn't really working. We're just going to cancel this. It's so much easier in, in business to add than it is to take away. And then we just get this bloat. So if leaders can role model how to take away and, oh, look, I just canceled the meeting series. It can be that easy, <laughs> you know, and if, if, if there's really something important that is not going to get done because of that, we're smart people. We'll figure out a way. And maybe we do need to bring it back in some way, maybe with fewer people or bring in different people or different cadence or whatever it is. But I think that's really a healthy thing to do. And if you role model that yourself, then everyone else feels liberated like, oh, Steph just canceled that meeting series. So if she's doing something like that, certainly I could do something like that. Yeah, then it keeps going from there. Role modeling behaviors is such an important aspect of good leadership. In fact, one of the things that we've had to do and deal with at the moment with COVID is how do we role model coping through a global pandemic? How do you keep people calm, productive and engaged? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's so much right now that people are dealing with on different levels and Nobody is not impacted because we are humans and we feel each other's pain as well. And so, well, we, we all went, anyone who could at the Iconic went remote. So we have people in our fulfillment center that can't work remotely, obviously. And what I'm recommending is that 
People do more warm-ups, like I'm calling warm-ups, not icebreakers, because icebreakers can have a, a negative connotation or like people are kind of like, oh, I don't want to do an icebreaker, it's silly. People do need to connect and unwind a little bit. And so I think when you start a remote meeting, you should have some sort of warm-up. And then there's also the... Um, the notion of the sooner someone speaks in a meeting, the more likely they are to continue contributing. And it sets the press, uh, precedent for equal voice. So we want to hear from all of you equally. We're going to start that by doing an icebreaker, which facilitates that and then continuing that, uh, assuming it's a session that you want to have collaboration in. I love that you labeled it warm up. Exactly. Because words do matter. A little warm up and you don't skip your warm up. You might skip your icebreaker. Don't skip the warm up. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's like professional sports. Limber up, stretch, get connected as a team before you go off and play a great game. Connecting as a team is just so important for productivity, for your delivery. Any kind of workspace is really dependent on connecting, working together. But COVID's just put a whole other level of stress on it as being distributed and separate. What is the Iconic doing that others can really learn from during this stressful time? Um, so we've been encouraging uh, people to take a break from the screen time. So you hear about Zoom fatigue, it's a real thing. Teaching people how to work asynchronously. Uh, so a lot of our, not a lot, certain parts of our organization weren't used to working remotely much at all because they just worked face-to-face in the office before COVID hit. And so teams like that, um, when COVID hit, tend to just take everything that they were doing in the office and they move it to Zoom. And um, if you stay at that level of operating, you will burn out. Helping them it usually starts with a social contract of how, what are our communication norms and what do we expect of each other? Um, you know, what channels do we communicate on if it's urgent? You know, how often do we expect people to, to check certain channels so that people aren't feeling like they have to be on top of everything all the time and they can have some deep thinking time or just... Um, some time when they you know don't have to be vigilantly watching all of their different devices and also just time there's been an afternoon siesta that the iconic has implemented um during lunch which encourages no no meetings um get outside if you can um eat and just unplug for a while creative contribution thinking time whether it be for strategy or even what you tactically doing is so important in companies but it's not always there I mean there are places where there are good bosses and there are some bad ones tell us a bit about have you had a good or a bad boss Uh, I've had both difficult bosses and difficult times I I like to just think of them as learning opportunities and you know remember what this feels like so that you don't make someone else feel like this I also, I mean, as I've gotten more experience, I feel like a lot of difficult bosses are that way because of the environment. So it's not the people as much as it's pressures that are being put on them and what they're being asked to do. So I think difficult bosses tend to come out of unhealthy environments. And 
at the iconic uh, Zoe Ghani. She's definitely one of my favorite bosses. And I would just love to watch her work. Like the way that she would give someone constructive feedback at the same time as propping them up and making them, you know, want to do better was amazing. Yeah, I learned so much from her and how she operated and, uh, and got things done. So yeah, I've worked with a lot of really great people over my career, have learned a lot from, from all of them. So let's get down to some practical tips. What do you think is a really good starting practice for aspiring agile business leaders? Well, if you're looking for a practice to start with, I definitely think retrospectives are the, are the practice to start with and participating in them wholeheartedly, you know, demonstrating that you're open to feedback, that you admit that things aren't perfect and we can continuously improve and we will. On a larger scale, what I'm most proud of, and I really love doing this kind of work, is creating the operating systems or ecosystems where agility can thrive and um, or aquariums I've heard him refer to as because I do believe that it's not the fish it's the aquarium <laughs> so if the fish are dying then you know maybe check the oxygen level in the water that kind of thing and and getting that aquarium right uh, I like the analogy of the aquarium because it's never a set and forget and it's always changing especially because you're you know dealing with human beings and the dynamics are definitely complex when you get the aquarium right the kinds of things the way it looks is um, there's an escalation path for issues depending on who needs to deal with them both up issues and communication both up and down and, and a very frequent loop for that. So whether it's every 24 or 48 hours. And so basically, and it's very clear, everyone's very clear on the outcomes that we're aiming to achieve. And so what, what then happens is instead of having to be on top of it and know everything that's going on, you just have to make sure that that ecosystem is working. If problems come up, you know that they'll go to, come to the right place and they'll start to be resolved. And you'll know about them, you know, at a minimum or maximum within 48 hours or maybe even sooner. And that's really the healthy environment. Yeah. And I love seeing when that comes together. And bringing it all together is such an important aspect of agile business management. I couldn't think of a better metaphor for what a modern day manager does is being accountable for the aquarium. And it's really important that we point this out, like you are responsible for the operating system, you're responsible for the flow, the efficiency, the productivity, the environment, resources and tools that allow people to contribute the best that they can. So one of the other aspects that agile business management is responsible is obviously culture and the cultural systems. And there's a real trend towards building cultural productivity in order to deliver better outcomes with more engaged people. Tell us a bit about what you've been doing as head of agility. So I've always been working with agile practices, as I mentioned at Intuit. But when I got into transformation work in Australia 
and brought people from more traditional working to agile and saw the difference it made in their lives at work as well as at home, the things that not everyone, but a lot of people would say uh, uh, are things like, I could never go back to working the old way. Um, they would say things like, my partner says I'm a different person when I come home because I have energy, uh, because they weren't holding the stress on their own shoulders. They had a team they were working with. It was very clear what they needed to do. Uh, they often felt accomplishment at the end of the day because they could see what they accomplished or the end of the week, whatever it might be. And, uh, and they were growing. So I think in, a, in an agile environment, um, you know, we talk about growth mindset or learning cultures, you are always growing and learning from the people you work with, uh, from your customers. That's a really healthy place to be. You feel really good. There's a healthy balance in an agile work environment between, well, we talk about sustainable pace. So, you know, you might have times where you're going really hard and strong, but that's not all the time because it's not sustainable and you'll burn out. So people who work in a healthy, agile environment, you know, you tend to work hard, but you play hard too. And you have time for your life outside of work, which is a good thing. It's such a good thing. Cultural productivity is such a bonus of leading agile teams and we all do really enjoy it. But I think most of all, we all become really proud of what we deliver in terms of whether it's products or business outcomes. Hey, I gotta say, thank you so much for all that you've taught us today from everything that you learned at Intuit to what you've been doing around culture and helping people get through COVID-19. I'm not going to let you go just yet. I actually want to hear what are the top three books that best represent you as an agile business leader? Okay. So the, the first one I'll share with you is called Love Works um, by Joel Manby. The thing I liked about this book is he talks about how important um, having company values are, but also personal values. What he says is you, you should choose companies that align with your personal values and you shouldn't have to be a different person at work than you are outside of work. And that really resonated with me. And I've since reading that book, definitely consciously, cho cho I choose companies um, where my values are aligned to them. And, and I choose, personally, I choose purpose-driven companies. So the, what they're trying to do uh, needs to resonate with me on, from the purpose perspective as well. Uh, so that's one, Love Works. Uh, the second one is um, An Everyone Culture by Robert Keegan and uh, Lisa Lascal-Lehi. This one talks about a learning culture and how great companies become great through growing their people. Everybody has a growth mindset and, and um, is learning every day. I love to work in those environments. And they have this book. I think it's three companies they case study throughout the book. And it's, it's really good. My third one is my new favorite. I call it my Bible. It's called Brave New Work by Aaron Dignam. He has a great talk as well that where he goes through a lot of the concepts in this book. 
and he's very Simon Sinek like in his presentation style. So he's um, he's really entertaining to watch. I called the Bible, and this actually is like an Old and New Testament to it because it the first part talks about traditional ways of working and why that how they came about the Taylorism and um, and theory X versus theory Y and all that kind of stuff. The New Testament talks about the new ways of working and why they work um, in a knowledge-based economy. Yeah, he thinks of how we work within organizations as an operating system canvas. And then he, and that, that includes things like the purpose, um, what are the resource, how do they manage people, how do they conduct meetings, how do they make decisions, how do they innovate, all that kind of stuff. And then each chapter, he, he basically has two main principles that he keeps revisiting, which is um, people positive, which is about how, you know, we, it's kind of like the good intent. As people, you want to do good work. You want to do good things. So how do you leverage that part of every human being? And so he talks about complex versus complicated concepts and complex and, and that gets to um, based on complexity what does that look like and it's easy to read it's it's awesome i love this book brave new worker thank you so much jody it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast today thanks steph for having me Thank you. And listeners, don't forget that we'll be putting our show notes, all the references that Jody mentioned onto the episode page on my website, stephaniebysouth.com. Have a great day.